Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Lou. Hey guys. And Mev. Hello. Today we're going to talk about uh, the unemployment and everything that goes along with it. Obviously, the coronavirus pandemic has caused a big uptick in the unemployment rate in the U.S. over the past year that has slowly trickled down as more and more places are um, getting back to quote unquote normal, uh, whether that's wise or not. But something that isn't talked about a lot is just the experience of being unemployed and what that does to you, how that affects you mentally. Um, and Mev, I guess, luckily for our purposes, maybe not for yours, uh, you've had that experience over the last few months. Um, there's no question I can ask here that isn't too broad, but uh, what's that been like? <laughs> so uh, just a, a quick little background I graduated with a photojournalism degree back in 2017, uh, right when my father passed away. It was really good timing. <laughs> Anyways, and I, at that point, I had a little bit of a crisis of, of faith, I guess, or a crisis of existential crisis of I didn't want to do exactly what I had been planning to do. So I moved back home and I started working retail. I worked at two different department stores doing, you know, in two different capacities. One was directly for the retailer and one was as a vendor. And then when I got up to Rochester, I decided to work directly for the store. It was a sales job. I started working there in October of 2019. Because they had gotten me on as a holiday hire, I was about a month away from my full employment benefits when the coronavirus hit um, and everything was shut down. They kept us employed for two weeks up until April 1st. And then come July, they laid off 3,000 people, including myself, um, right before they gave their CEOs a whole bunch of bonuses. So that was real grand. And this company also has a uh, reputation for being a family company. So that was also you know, some salt in the wound there. Every company tries to brand itself as a family company nowadays. Um. Yes. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was laid off and I was having a lot of difficulty with anxiety, um, a lot of mental health problems before everything hit. And of course, afterwards when it hit, it was, it was crazy. And when I was laid off, you know, you, there's a certain sense of failure, right? Uh, uh, I wasn't good enough to be kept on. Something that I did wasn't like, yes, I was a newbie and I figured that had a lot to do with it. So at least I, there was that to protect my, you know, confidence a bit. But it's still, it's a blow. And at first it was weird. It wasn't like I was very eager to get a new job either. I'm immunocompromised. So both I and my doctor were not going to put me out there anytime soon. I'm still on unemployment. Um, 
And it's been a weird experience. Um, there's a part of me that feels guilty, but there's another part of me that really enjoys this experience because I feel like I'm finally being paid to do the work that I enjoy to do, which would have never happened before this pandemic. So I've been building up my photo archive. I've been helping out with the DSA, with some other organizations, and I've been able to help out um, with my, my widowed mother um, with her parents, my grandparents' elder um, end-of-life care, which again is not stuff that is normally compensated for unless right. you're lucky. Uh, so it's 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 interesting. It's I'm not exactly excited to go back to work, but I'm hoping I can find a job that will pay me to do stuff that I enjoy instead of having to go to the back to the hellscape that is the retail world. Yeah, I've absolutely worked retail. It is barbaric. It's really difficult to deal with. Um, I don't currently work retail, but I still work in that kind of guest services, service industry kind of thing. And as Mev said, like one of the things about it is heaven forbid she find fulfillment outside of her job, um, which you have, and you've had this experience and it's really good. And, and I have had to work through the entire pandemic. Um, we did work from home for a bit while my organization was closed, but it wasn't easy work. It wasn't good. And so to be able to have that experience now is, is fantastic. And I, I, I'm happy for you. I really am. Um, cause that's, that's one thing we, we have talked about many times on the show is finding like our work doesn't define us except in capitalist terms. And that's not a good way to go. And I will say it did take me a few months into being unemployed where I could finally get my, my mental health to a state where I could work on things that I enjoyed without feeling this like overwhelming sense of I'm doing something wrong or I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or what it is, but it's like I shouldn't be enjoying this time. I should be suffering. Right. And it took me a while to just get over that. Right. That's the whole thing about the unemployment like process is it's supposed to be punitive. It's supposed to be enough of a burden to make people be willing to put themselves on the line, uh, put themselves in compromising positions uh, for their health and safety um, or mental health, whatever, uh, in order to not have to go through that. And when the pandemic first hit and millions, literally millions of people all of a sudden had to experience this beyond just, you know, having to suffer the stigma of being unemployed, because that is huge in, in a lot of ways, maybe not anymore as much. It certainly was before the, the pandemic, but hundreds of thousands couldn't get benefits that they paid into and that they were owed. Uh, because the system is so broken, because it's so punitive and difficult to work with. Um, so y yeah, <laughs> but you rose above, you got over it. Something that strikes me is, Lou, you talked about sort of the punitive nature of unemployment. It's meant to be worse than not having, or it's meant to be worse than the already sometimes miserable experience of having a job. And I've been reading uh, Sarah Jaffe's book, Work Won't Love You Back, which uh, we obviously are doing a reading group of here at Punching Out. And, you know, something she talks about is that, you know, this is very much by design. Uh, I just had to bring up a quote here. 
When misery was known to be the condition of the wage worker, people would do anything, nearly anything to avoid such labor. So bosses and the state had to ensure that people's lives without wage work would be even more miserable than with it. And, you know, that's sort of the whole, the crux of everything under capitalism is that if you don't have a job, you're either punished through various laws against vagrancy, you know, in the old days or through uh, a welfare system that is designed to shunt you back into the workplace, no, no matter what the cost. And it's something that COVID has briefly altered because there have been those expanded unemployment benefits first under the CARE Act. And then, and since in um, more recent stimulus, uh, it was 600 a month extra. Now it's 300 or 400. Is that right? 300. It's a week, right? Not even a month. So I'm understating the extent of it. And so for the first time in basically forever, it isn't actually punitive to not have a job. There there are, it's freeing in a way, like Mev described. Um, But one of the things that you have to deal with instead is, you know, the stigma and the shame that is lumped on people who take pleasure in not working. And that's, that's like, I've, I've said this many times before, um, the capitalist class likes to talk about labor and the, the contract as two partners equally entering into it. Um, the laborer who needs to sell their labor and the capitalist who needs the labor. But we conveniently forget or they, they choose to forget to mention the fact that it's a deliberately coercive environment that we have to operate in that your choices aren't I work for this guy or not the choices are often I work for this person who's going to exploit me or I will die because I can't access food shelter security anything like that and it's every single part of our our government and state is designed to enforce that coercion Sorry, this got heavy. Whoo! Who knew talking about unemployment would all of a sudden get that into everything? Well, and to go off of that, um, I uh, like I said, I, I'm immunocompromised. I have some of my own health issues, and when you do have medical issues, and I also have medical issues that, like looking at me, you wouldn't know about. I think most of the time, you have this idea of somebody who has health problems you know, th- there's a certain look. They're, they're in a device, they have a device on them or, or something like that. We forget that there are people who are dealing with health problems that you can't see it, but it's still a struggle. Um, mental health is one thing, which, you know, we're behind on, but that's another story. And when I was in college, there was this whole idea of, well, you get your full-time job that pays the bills, and then you do your personal project on the side in your free time. And I'm like, what free time? In my free time, I'm either sleeping, taking care of myself, or dealing with doctors. I don't have this this mythical free time. Like I need my full eight hours of sleep. I can't go off of like six hours like some people can. I don't think we realize how ableist that way of thinking is. And not just that, I myself am generally considered perfectly able-bodied, but I... Uh, remember briefly, there was a time when everything was shut down, when I could get into baking and I got really good at it. 
but that's I haven't been able to do that in months because I'm so exhausted from working and then from all of the things I have to do around the house in order to not live in squalor that I crash on the couch at 8.30 at night every single night. I'm just physically exhausted. I can't do things. I can't pick up hobbies or do stuff because I have to work every day. Yeah, And work is exhausting, as we've talked about at length on this show. It's it's draining, and again, that's largely by design. You're not supposed to have the time to find fulfillment elsewhere because so much of our society has been set up around the idea, true or otherwise, that people are going to find fulfillment through the workplace. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't always the case. There was a time not that long ago when it was sort of understood that jobs were jobs, you know, not big callings or things that you were going to find yourself through, but just a way to put food on the table for your family. And we've gotten away from that to sort of cover up the fact that jobs can no longer cover an entire family. They can't feed a family. And and so workers are left in this trap of being told that they need to find fulfillment through a, a job and then somehow actually making ends meet is supposed to be secondary in a way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's the the whole principle behind the like rise and grind, uh, which could be trademarked. I don't really care, but non-intentional use. That movement that we've seen for the past four years, eight years, I don't know, time is meaningless now. That's, that's the whole principle behind it. And every single occupation that pays slightly more than minimum wage has to be a calling. Everything that play, pays minimum wage is supposed to just be a stepping stone beyond that. The, the one thing I will say from all this is, especially since the PRO Act is, has made it much farther in its life cycle of a bill than I honestly would have ever suspected. Um, I think the Senate still debating it or sitting on it. The fact that that has made it as far as it has shows that things are changing to me, that, that there's a more, there's more visibility on the struggles of everyday workers beyond just the, Oh, I'm working from home and I can't go see people or I have to go outside and I can't open my phone with my face anymore. Those people really irritate me. I'm not going to lie. It's been a year. Get over it. You still have to wear a mask. There's been movement and there's been stuff. And this and the fact that we have a lot of people finding fulfillment through not having to work for their survival, I think is part of it. And that's a good thing. The goal of this whole project to me is to get us out of work and having to, to do this in order to survive. We can work for fulfillment or work on things that actually give us fulfillment but working for your wage isn't doesn't need to be fulfillment nor should you have to do it if you don't want to lou you talked about uh, sort of people who identify with their work you know it you know when you talk to someone new one of the first questions is almost always what do you do and mm-hmm. obviously that question can mean a whole bunch of things but in practice it means what do you do for money it means right. you know What's your job? What's your career if you're lucky enough to have a capital C career? Mev, you, you'd mentioned that one of the things that you've been able to use this free time for is sort of caring for your loved ones or your family. 
it strikes me that the people who do that work of caring in the family, uh, they are, by one definition, unemployed because they aren't getting paid. They aren't getting paid to do that. They aren't working for someone else. If you care for someone else's family, you're employed. But if you are a stay-at-home mother or you're taking care of you know, elderly relatives, that isn't, in our society, considered properly work. And, and that sort of distinction you know, has a whole bunch of negative effects for the people who do it. Yeah, um, I mean, it was it was interesting. My um, my grandfather recently passed away. He was ninety seven years old, and we had him at this very nice, very expensive assisted living place. Um, and they recently had problems within the the last week of his life getting coverage because of COVID with, they have to get a certain temperature test and like everywhere, um, you know, at, at all these places that, you know, have poverty wages that are essential, quote unquote, are desperately see- seeking workers, but nobody wants to work for these people because we're, you know, the wool has come off of the eyes. But when we were coordinating, they were having difficulty getting people to do these certain shifts. So my mother had to split uh, time up with her brother. Um, Thank God she had a sibling that could help with this because this was before I could come down to help um, because I have my own place up in a, in Rochester. My mother doesn't live in that area. So I, you know, I have to come down and, and that's time too. And so they go in and they're taking shifts doing the same exact work that these people that they are paying through the nose to come and help and do this stuff. And by the way, most of that money isn't actually going to the care workers. It's going right. to administration and the executive director. I, I, I work at an assisted living facility myself. I work in the kitchen. And you know what you describe is sort of exactly what I've seen. We used to have three cooks on staff. And the last few months, we've had two because... The supervisor in the kitchen, my boss, just doesn't want to put up with hiring somebody and paying them to do it. So he's doing that work himself, which is funny because he's not good at it, but that's another matter. Um, But you're seeing sort of these shifts and staffs that used to be larger are shrinking and it's they're not willing to pay more than $13.50 an hour if you're starting out. And that's part of the reason which you know, we can get into some in the in the next segment, but I, I don't want to get off this topic just yet. I guess the question is, like, how do we end some of the stigma that surrounds unemployment as it currently exists? You know, how do we get out of this trap of treating people who don't have jobs currently like, you know, they don't matter, like they're worthless, essentially? It's one of those things, like, I think you should make everybody sign a pledge. I, sli- I swear to never be a jerk to somebody who isn't working because one, it's none of my business. And two, I don't know anything about what's going on in their life. That's silly and and obviously facetious, but that's a really good question. How do you stop that? I mean, I don't think the stigma comes, it's at all levels because our fellow workers will do that. Like if I decided tomorrow to just retire or whatever and not work, People would be like, huh, that's a choice you made. You know, my coworkers would do that to me. But there's also the attitude of like Jeff Bezos saying like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we are, we are willing to meet you halfway and give you your whatever you need 
if you work for us. And I don't know. The point is it comes at every single level of, of society. And I honestly have no idea other than to pay people to, to stay at home, just which we could have been doing this whole time would have been cheaper. We really need a universal base income like that is very important. And, we, and I think it was out in California. Maybe you guys are familiar with this, but there was a town where they did a study where they gave people a base income, a base monthly income to see if that, you know, the, the, the hypothesis has always been, well, if you give people money, they're going to be lazy and they're not going to do anything. They actually found that the opposite is true. If you give people these money, they've, um, they're able to finish their a higher degree, which means they can get a higher paying job that's, you know, giving more into the economy. Um, and, and you just see that people are using this money to better themselves in their society, to get better jobs, to be, you know, giving back. Um, it's not, they're not hoarding this money like the dragons at the top are doing currently. Yeah, I, I found the article or an article on the study. It was in Stockton, California, uh, to read from it, um, quote, after receiving $500 per month for two years without rules on how to spend it, 125 people in Stockton paid off debt, got full-time jobs, and reported lower rates of anxiety and depression, according to a study released Wednesday. And this was just from last month, March 4th, this was published. So now obviously $500 a month is not going to pay rent in most places. It, it's not going to be sufficient for living off of, but it... You know, this income, we have this aversion in the U.S. to just giving people money. We want to make people jump through various hoops of means testing and, you know, you got to suffer of, for it. Right. Um, you know, you talk about like EBT cards that put restrictions on whether you can have certain foods heated or just toasted. Um, there, are, there are all these ways that we make it that we make poor people's lives harder than they need to be, because if you just give people money. Usually, that solves the problem of them not having enough money. You know, that's the problem of poverty. It's not about culture or attitudes. It's money. Yeah, precisely. I think Finland was, they did a multi-year study too. Same, same thing. People were happier. People had a better time. So the evidence is there. Let's do it. And I know that we'll probably get into this more later on, but I think another part of it is we really need to get rid of this demonization of poor people. This idea that poor people are lazy, poor people are, you know, they're not contributing to society, they're boils on our existence. Like, I don't know where, like, I grew up in a pretty affluent place. Um, and now I am a lot further down on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and I just remember growing up and some of the things you heard about people that they couldn't, you know, they, they were suffering, they were having difficulty. And it's like, they, it's kicking people below you. It, it never made sense to me. I'm, I'm not used to having reached sort of a solution this early in the show, but um, <laughs> we're going to have to There's one keep, solution. keep moving on. Um, we'll take a break here, but when we come back, I want to talk a bit about, you know, what the search for a job looks like in 2021. It's not fun. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 
If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Lou. Hey, guys. And Mev. Hello. We, we talked a lot in the first segment about uh, unemployment and what it's been like to be unemployed during the pandemic, uh, thanks to Mev's experience for that. Um, now we want to move on to what it looks like when you're trying to end that unemployment, when you're trying to uh, look for jobs and interview for jobs and maybe, in theory, get hired. Because it's not easy. The process of looking for a job can be very dispiriting, I, I've found during my working life. And, uh, and I think, Mev, you've experienced that as well and just looking. Oh, yeah. What sort of caught your eye over the last few months as you've browsed? Uh, so, unfortunately, not much. Um, I do now have two jobs that I, uh, I want to apply to. Um, but during the pandemic, I have applied, I've applied to like one job seriously. Um, because most of the jobs that I come across are volunteer opportunities, which means unpaid, um, or they are, uh, it's underemployment. They're jobs that I was doing after I graduated as I was looking for jobs. So my job search never really ended since college. And it's been really difficult. The pandemic just kind of made it more, it made it even more disheartening. Because for a while, there wasn't any, there weren't any jobs out there except for stuff that was on the front lines, which being in my medical position was not something I or my doctors were going to, we weren't, it wasn't going to happen. Thankfully, with New York, how they do their unemployment, I was, I'm protected by that. So I do, I am very thankful for that because it's not, I'm sure that's not the case everywhere. But it's it hasn't been it hasn't been fun. I mean, one of the recent offers that I got, it was you know how you get those form emails. It's like it, not a job offer, but an offer to apply for a job that doesn't give you the, the salary. It's really vague. And then when you get in there, um, I applied for one place that was a call center job, and I didn't even realize it was a call center job until we were on the phone. And I was like, oh, they, that would have been nice for you guys to have told me up front. I also had that experience uh, several years ago now of going into an interview and not really realizing what the job actually was. It was a sales position, that I and I did not know that going in because – their wording on the listing was just vague enough to be, it could really have been anything. They were asking flexible opportunity and dynamic market for, they were asking uh, more for personality traits than like positions, so to speak, you know, are you uh, aggressive and sports minded is, is the one term I remember, which what does that even mean? That's a great one. I love it. You know, looking for go getters. These job postings sounds more, they sound more like advertisements. Like when I go onto LinkedIn, I feel like I'm walking into a used car dealership because I don't know what I'm getting. I have no idea what the price of anything is. I have to do all the research on my own. 
the person that's supposedly there to help you, like headhunters, like my mom was telling me, she's always talking about her job hunt days and she never actually had a career. She did, she went from temp job to temp job until her career was being a mom. And I wouldn't be here if that hadn't been her, you know, she gave me part of her liver. She paid a lot of other people to do that. Um, she didn't get any compensation for that. Um, and it's not like I can pay her because I don't have any money. Um, and of course, it's like, oh, well, you, that's not something that you pay for. But like, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work what my mother did. It, it could be something that you pay for. It could be something that gets paid. You know, it, it's not now, but that doesn't have to be the case forever. Yeah. Pretty sure we have an whole episode on, on that, mm-hmm. getting yes. paid for, <laughs> for homework. Yeah. Okay. So full disclosure, I am the villain on this piece because uh, I Ooh, am- I know, boo hiss. I've, I've, it's, it's actually been probably a couple of years since I mentioned it, but I'm a boss and I am in charge of hiring at my position. And I am a, completely aware of all of the garbage that's out there as far as positions, um, because I see it from the other end and like I see what people, other people like apply to. How many years of experience do you require for an entry level job, Lou? Uh, <laughs> None. Literally none. I will hire you if you're a wee babby. I, I have. All the jobs that I applied to after graduation, I needed one to three or three to five years experience. And that was entry level. Those were for journalism and editorial type jobs. Yeah. It, it's And especially with the white collar positions, like luckily because I'm service industry, like I'm a little bit in a, I'm in a different boat. And I do try to be fair with that. But there's so many tricks that employers try to do, or, or not not necessarily the, the employers themselves, but the company, the HR department, that they try to get in order to get people to apply. And then from there, yes, that interview is part of the sales. But almost everything out there as far as literature on interview process and application is all, how do I get employers to look at me? The, the fact that we have both of these things going on where where one side is trying to pull one over on the other is pretty fascinating. Basically, everybody's trying to get the jobs that aren't trying to sell you on the job. And, and part of that's just because there's so much turnover in those really terrible jobs like call centers. They basically will hire a warm body to to put you in. And they'll make you feel like you are the most special warm body that ever existed (laughs) until they fire you or find some other reason to get rid of you. I mean, to (sighs) be fair, a lot of these places aren't firing people. They're just, they're driving them away themselves. Like I I can guarantee like a lot of that turnover isn't on the employer side of it uh, because it's just such a hellish place to work. Oh, yeah. I The way when I moved up to Rochester, back up to Rochester, my first job was at a call center. Um, I got through the eight week training program and then I never went back. And the fun thing was I called them to quit and then they fired me. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, like, I feel like I'm in a sitcom. I already quit. <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. quit. I'm firing you. Yeah. It basically. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm glad that this has nothing to do what I actually want to do with my life, and I'm probably not going to put them on a resume. Mm-hmm. Speaking of resumes, I'm just going to read off a list of like Google results for a search I did earlier, which is, is really bleak. Uh, 
how to algorithm optimize your resume to get past the bots, eight best resume format tips for hiring algorithms, how to write a resume that passes the artificial intelligence test. And and these are just soul-crushing things to read because they're part of a broader trend where most resumes nobody actually looks at. They get weeded out now by AI that is taught to look for certain keywords. And so there's this secondary industry of teaching people how to put those keywords into their resume, you know, regardless of what their actual skills look like, regardless of what their qualifications look like, you have to have this additional skill of knowing how to get past the computers and the algorithms so that you can actually talk to someone. And it may not be a person at that stage either. Right. So, so the, the best part about that is uh, companies like Indeed and all these job posting sites, on the one hand, they're selling their services to people posting jobs and saying, uh, you know, this is how you can get these jobs. This is the best place to find these jobs. And then on at the same time, at the exact same time, they're selling their services to employers and saying, well, we can, we can help you find these good applicants. We can uh, weed them out and, and only show you the best ones to guarantee that you're going to have a, a quality hire. So, so not only is there an industry around maximizing your exposure to employers, there's an industry on the other flip side of it that is doing the same thing, working in competition or in collaboration, depending on, on how conspiracy theory you're working. I'm curious to see how things are going to shape out. Because uh, right now, there are far more jobs right now, entry level, crappy pay, to be fair, than there are applicants. Like I think the Rochester uh, Chamber of Commerce had a job fair recently where they had 400 positions available and four people showed up to that job fair. I got uh, an invite to that job fair and <laughs> none of the jobs were appealing or fit yeah. what I went to school for. Right. And, and it's like I said, it's not like there's a situation where there's uh, a bunch of good white collar jobs because those are scarce and have been becoming more scarce. Like I don't see that changing anytime soon without major labor reform. Um, those jobs don't exist. However, all of the service industry jobs, the scary ones that are high risk um, because they're public facing and terrible pay, those are everywhere, every single place. And every place that's reopening or, or increasing their capacity, they're looking for staff as well. So I don't know if there's going to be actually any dynamic shift in in how this works as an industry. Well, it'll be separate dynamics. There will be yeah. a one dynamic for the jobs that people want and another dynamic for the jobs that suck. And what we're seeing for the jobs that suck is there have been a lot of stories in recent weeks uh, across the country now of restaurant owners who, gosh darn it, just can't find any good help these days because they're only offering $11 an hour is sort of the unspoken subtext of it. And, but And unemployment is the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's very much designed to point the finger at uh, the expanded unemployment benefits and say that this is why nobody wants to work. And the yeah. fact that, say, there was a recent study that showed that line cook is the profession that has had the greatest rise in mortality during COVID because restaurants have been a 
hotspot for the disease. That almost never gets brought up in these articles because they're not really about why someone wouldn't want to work these jobs. Yeah, if you want fair and balanced news coverage for every job or for every news article where you're like, this person can't hire, you need to be like, this person got attacked for working and enforcing a mask policy. And also having worked in the news industry, like I'm just wondering if the Associated Press or one of the other news wires came out with a, a very specific story like that and then all the other ones just hopped in on it because I I worked for one of these major news outlets and that's exactly like everything I did was based off of what the wires were already doing. And so then all these news sources are saying the exact same thing. And it's like, it's, it's like the same thing with what happens at black Friday. Like everybody's talking about these great deals, but nobody actually talks about how all of these retail workers are being hella exploited. Yeah. Uh, One great example of this actually came just this morning, Sunday morning, in the Democrat and Chronicle uh, front page headline, uh, Help Wanted. Uh, Subhead was something like, uh, restaurants are facing a labor shortage. Here's how that could affect you, the diner. This article, I I took the time to count out like the people who were quoted in it. There were 11 people. Nine of them were restaurant owners. There was one person who owned a job search website. And one person who was a former restaurant worker who had, um, over the years, risen up to the level of manager. But oh, he's, God. you know, on the third page of this article after seven restaurant owners have been quoted to tell you how bad a problem it is. Won't somebody think of the poor capitalists? They did give him space to list off reasons why he's a former restaurant employee. He, not, he now works at uh, FedEx or UPS. And, and he talked about you know how he grew tired of having to remind people to put their mask back up when they get up from the table 15 times a day. Th- this is the one mention in the article of the fact that there's a real risk to these jobs right now. You know, this is something we talked about just a few weeks ago. These jobs are now tasked with enforcing mask rules and distancing requirements because nobody else is going to look out for their actual safety. Mm-hmm. There's a restaurant that I pass by every single day in Rochester, and the turnover rates are ridiculous. Like, I don't see the same people there, at least not the wait staff, from what I can tell. Like, it, they, they can't keep these people. And from my understanding is if a place has a very high turnover rate, it means that it's awful to work there. So, and, and it's a place in the city where a lot of people from outside of the city come in to brunch. And it's just, I I see these workers and I just feel so bad for them, Um, especially when they have to be inside. I mean, I know we have the vaccine now, but towards the beginning of the pandemic, it was just, it was heartbreaking. I I, want to get back a bit to sort of the interview process, because one one of the uh, famous questions for interviews is, why do you want to work here? And you're not allowed to give an honest answer to that question. You're not allowed to say because it pays well or because I need to pay the bills. You have to give an answer that expresses, you know, your passion and (laughs) your enthusiasm for this job specifically. And that process of being made to basically lie, I I think, is one of the worst aspects of the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I uh, confess here and now that I do ask that question. 
when I'm hiring people. It's the first thing I say. I say, hey, I got some questions for you. Why did you apply? And, or, or the think, what, I don't remember what the exact wording is. I used. Like, nobody has yet had the courage to tell me because I need a job, except for the people I've interviewed that got laid off because of COVID. And they're, yeah, those are all very depressing to talk to. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, the cornerstone of the hiring process at this point. It, it's, you know, we could build a monument to how much it encourages people to BS on both sides of, of the equation. It, it is stellar. Lou, I have a question for you on the topic of disingenuous questions. Yeah. Desired salary, is that a trick question? Kind of. Kind of. It is. Um, <laughs> so from, from the hiring standpoint, if I'm paying minimum wage and you're looking for $20 an hour, I'm probably not going to call you back because even if I do hire you, and even if I do give you all these money, the idea is that you're going to leave me the second you get that. And from a turnover standpoint, that's not going to work. Um, that like that's going to be the thing. So uh, yeah, it's a legit question. I I have to say like the best thing to do in those situations is to be honest about that. I mean, it depends on how much you want to get jerked around and how much you want to jerk around the other person. Like to your comfort level, be it. Um, yeah, so if you if you want to play that game with somebody, do it. I don't care. That's on them to figure out, not you. See, and that's like part of the problem I have with capitalism, at least in our country right now, is that everything, everything feels like a game. It's it's like we're all we live in a casino and it's you're trying to beat the house, but the house always wins. Right. Yeah, and especially at, at the upper level jobs, like you don't want to ask too low because then they're not going to take you seriously or think you undervalue yourself. Um, but if you ask for too much, then they're going to be like, Psh, this person doesn't need that job. So yeah, that that aspect of the casino and trying to outthink and game theory the other the other side, it's extremely there. I'm not going to tell anybody that they need to behave a certain way in a job interview because. Yeah, if if you are honestly looking for a job and you wanna you wanna find it, I I personally would choose the honest route because then I think you're gonna have a little less suffering in the end. But it's it's completely up to you. Like you don't you are not obligated to stick with a job that doesn't work for you, and you shouldn't try to think that an an employer shouldn't expect anything else. Like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You need to move on. If that makes any sense. One of the frustrating aspects of you know the way we've gamified all this is that there are so many unwritten rules to the game that you're expected as an applicant to know how the game is played before going in. And you're never really taught that this is the answer they're really looking for. You know, you have to sort of suss that out on your own. Um, but I, I will come to lose defense here, and we are not in the <laughs> business of defending bosses on punching out. I don't want you know, any confusion here. But at least in your defense, you are a human being, um, which is more than can be said for a lot of modern interviewers. Um, there was a number of articles in last few years about this company, uh, Higher View, which is... Um, View, V-U-E, which um, specializes in creating AI to do virtual or video interviews for employers before people ever speak to an actual 
hiring manager or HR person, they often now have to go through this process of talking to an AI, talking to effectively a robot that is programmed to look for certain things in your language and your body language in order to weed out applicants before they ever get to talk to a person. And that's another game that now increasingly workers have to learn how to play. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere something about uh, college admissions, or not admissions, but um, career centers and colleges having trainings on how to beat the higher view, those video um, things, which I'm perplexed that there's any demand whatsoever for, for facial recognition stuff beyond the cops. Um, given how, well, how much hiring managers are just, you know, the cops of the workplace, really. When you think about <laughs> no, it. That's, I mean, yeah, they, they are HR related. I will grant you that much, but, but given how much we know about how, uh, facial AI is very problematic. Um, it doesn't rec- recognize that you are a person. If your skin tone is anything darker than, pristine ivory the the biases that we have and that doesn't almost certainly matter how you're training your ai to operate um because there are certain biases out there in the world these ais always end up reflecting that and i'm very perplexed once again like I, i just said why this is even a thing that we still have or even considering until we fix this problem well i you just one of the big um, examples that came across was with Amazon, how they ditched it because they found that there was a hiring bias towards men because all the people that they had hired before were men. So it wasn't just that it was, you know, that it was picking up. It was literally getting rid of anything that had like the word like women's club, stuff like that. I had never heard about this higher view software or the idea of AI interviews until doing some research for this episode. Thank you, Ryan. I knew that the resumes had gone into the AI and that's part of another big part of the reason I've had a lot of anxiety, like <laughs> mental health blocks when it comes to applying for jobs, because I know that I, I, I put so much time and I put so much effort. I'm such a perfectionist. I went to school for like, I was always into English and journalism and all that stuff. So like words are my bread and butter. And then to just work on something so hard and then to just submit it into a big black hole and never hear anything again. Um, And you try to follow up and there are some places that you can't get through or they specifically tell you that you are not allowed to call them. Um, So you definitely know who has the upper hand in that situation. Um, if it's an AI, like I can't ask, it's not like if there's a, an interviewer or recruiting manager, like I can't ask them. So what, you know, how could I have done better? I'm not going to get that information. Yeah. Just, just one point on the calling people thing. Cause that's like the number one advice. If you talk to any of your boomer parents about how to get a job, they'd be like, well, did you call them to follow up? And, uh, why, why didn't you do that part? Never mind that. No, no, no. They're like, for some organizations, and you never know because it's a casino and you never can understand what the rules are, if you call them, you immediately go into the trash pile. 
I'm at the point where I, as long as you answer my call, I'll talk to you and give you a five, 10, 15 minutes, half hour of my time. Um, as long as you just call me back, I just need, I just want to talk to people. But uh, yeah. There was a thread going around on Twitter recently that people were uh, dunking on. I, I think sort of a hiring manager who was expressing dismay at the fact that a lot of millennial candidates were not sending out thank you letters after their interview. Uh, these are the ones who apparently had gotten through to the human interviews. And it's just, there's all this effort that is expected on the part of applicants that isn't matched by the employers who, as we've seen, are trying to cut out the effort they have to put in by putting in these AI roadblocks and who are, you know, making the job application process take this much longer because now you have to go through these five extra steps of, you know, talking to your webcam. I, I've gone to a lot of job trainings and one of the one of the one of their favorite metaphors to pull from is that applying for a job is like going on a date or, you know, it's like it's trying to court someone. And I, I hate first of all, oh, so many problems with that analogy, especially <laughs> although it works in the toxic environment of dating that we have in the 21st century because there is a huge power dynamic and you are always trying to please someone who you will never please because you're disposable. So whenever they say like, oh, it's like dating and you're courting and and no, it's like you're okay. Yes. If you're trying to court, I don't want to go too extreme here, but like if you're trying to court like the king, like, I'm sorry, but there's no way that, that there's equal ground there. There's no equal footing. And it's yeah. not like once you're with them, they're going to take care of you, right? And some people yeah. have, some of them have better uh, benefits packages than others, but you have to prove your loyalty for nine months, um, which in that period, they will probably fire you so that you cannot get your benefits. Well, that sort of analogy sort of ties into this idea that your work should be something that you love, which, you know, obviously big issues with that because it leads you to sort of overlook the ways it's exploiting you. Precisely. And and I just mumbled this, but uh, we, we've come full circle on that. As, uh, there, there's just such a sick uh, like state of mind that you have to be in in order to, quote unquote, survive in capitalism. Brainwashing. Like, that's pure and simple. That's what it is. You have to love what you do. You have to prove your love. You have to always be willing to bend and compromise yourself and your values in order to to get the job done or heck even get the job at this point that is weaponized in so many ways specifically in this in the way that people use unemployment and the fact that people can find fulfillment outside of work as a cleavage point in the working class for all the people who have been stuck working this entire time because they feel like they're lucky to still have a job and they don't want to risk losing it because who knows, like the unknown is scary. Unemployment's not fun as we talked about. Yeah. Unemployment's not fun. Like even if there are increased benefits right now, like you might not get them. Who knows how long it's going to last. You may never find another job again. Also on that point, I will say that unemployment wasn't great that whole time because there were without that benefit, without the extended, the add on. Um, I remember for a while there, I forget what months, it, you know, it all kind of blends together. But for a while there, we weren't getting any supplementary money. 
And that was impossible. Like my mom, bless her soul, was able to help me out. But like, there was no way that I would, would have been able to pay rent and my student loans and my medication. I, I it wouldn't yeah, have happened for sure. Uh, but, but now you have that freedom. And then all of these people, they, they, on the other side, the people who have continued to work because of multitudinous reasons, they feel resentful for people who have gotten to take a break and, and enjoy life beyond just the rise and grind. And that fracture is just hammered in every single news story we hear about the, the employers who nobody wants to work. How dare people decide that they want to take their own personal well-being into consideration over being paid absolute garbage to be abused every single day? How dare they? And that's, that's basically, when it comes down to it, that's what this conversation is, is people who have to do it are, and are still doing it because of circumstances and people who can't because of other circumstances. And we can do better than that. We, we have to be on guard against attempts to sort of breed this resentment towards those who are doing less off than us, less well off, I should say, because if we're angry about the people who have made an extra, you know, 600 a week or 400 a week, then we aren't looking at the people who have made an extra couple billion dollars during this time. You know, we aren't looking at the people who have actual power in this system to dictate how it is done and how it will not benefit people like us. Amen. One of my favorite memes going around the internet right now is complaining about people on unemployment not applying to your jobs is a really cool way to admit that you don't that you pay poverty wages. What if you calculate it out with the supplement, we're getting $15 an hour when you when you do the math. And like that's what we can't even get that for minimum wage and people are complaining about it. And restaurants, those poor waitresses, they don't even make the minimum wages in their states. They make less of that and they less than that and they have to rely on tips and not all of these people are tipping generously right now. One one point to this, Mab, and, and honestly, tell me. If, let's say hypothetically, like tomorrow, you got a job that paid $20, $25 an hour, good wage, that you didn't have to worry about getting sick, but it was also retail, would you be that eager to go back? If I had full health benefits... Mm-hmm. and opportunity for growth within the company, which they like to say that is that's the case, but it never actually happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I know people who have been in the retail industry for, I mean, my mom was working part-time for eight years and they laid her off. So like the, there's no, no such thing as reciprocal loyalty, right? You're supposed to be very loyal to them. A lot of these places even have, especially in the retail world, they have non-compete clauses. So like if you're working at, if you work at In-N-Out, right? You can't work at McDonald's. I don't know if that's actually the case, but, um, it, you know, insert retail store there, department store, whatever, is that's the case, um, which is really laughable when most of these jobs are part-time, full-time in retail 
is 28 to 30 hours, by the way. It's not a full 40 hours a week in most places. And you can't work anywhere else where your skills are applicable. It's wild that that sort of non-compete exists in that field because you, you hear about it at like big tech companies like Google and Apple. And, and even there, you know, it's a way to keep workers' wages down, you know, relatively speaking. But there's at least there, there's the sheen of, you know, the idea of like taking company secrets. But what secrets is a PacSun employee going to take to uh, Target? They're really poorly thought out. Oh, I forget the actual word for them, but they're the merchandising books. And I will tell you that they are made for certain stores. And if your certain store doesn't fit those very certain specifications, you have to try and like make it so it fits. And if it doesn't fit the way your district manager wants it to fit, then you're the most awful people in the world. Yeah. And the, so, the business is losing so much money because of you, because right. you, you know, didn't have the mannequin face, facing at a 47 degree angle. So, so the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that I don't think that it's entirely the wage, because if you get your time off and you get to go enjoy life, how eager are you to be back in a situation that is inherently abusive, which is at this point, any service industry job or almost any job? Um, once you've tasted that freedom away from this awful cycle, like at what point is there, are you going to be like, yeah, I could work that again. I don't think it's just minimum wage. I don't think it's like $15 an hour. I think there needs to be substantial changes to how work works in order for to lure people back. And, and this blaming it on the minimum wage, blaming it on employment isn't going to cut it anymore. Frankly, work needs to change. Yeah, because there's, uh, I mean, there's no way I want to go back to an industry where the customer is always right. And if they complain, I know my manager is not going to back me up. I mean, some places are better than others, but for the most part, especially if corporate gets involved, you look at what happened to some of these beauty influencers in Sephora getting laid off. Um, Like... And that guy, the really cool, uh, he was working for a paint company. I won't say the name because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, He was working for a paint company mixing paints and he made these really cool TikToks and, and he used, he paid for it all himself, but they fired him. Um, They could have like, he would have been awesome on their communications team, you know, working in the advertising sector, but instead they punished him. We have to cap this conversation there because uh, we've gone a bit over our allotted hour. So um, I I do want to thank you both for for coming on and talking about this. You you had a lot to say on the subject, which which is always good. Um, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I'm Mev. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.